the, the degree to which the Egyptian pharaohs did this and the degree to which their civilization went along with it and worshipped them as gods and built their tombs and all the rest of it is kind of astonishing really. We'll talk about this a little bit more as we go on, but throughout the Old Testament, throughout the scriptures really, Egypt usually represents that which is opposed to God and his purposes, right? What maybe older preachers or writers might have called the world, only worse. Our text for today finishes off Genesis 12. I'd invite you to stand as we read from God's word. And I'm also going to read just a little bit into uh, chapter 13. That kind of completes the, the story that happens at the end of Genesis 12. So we'll start Genesis 12, verse 10, and we'll go to 13, 13, 4. Genesis 12, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know you are a beautiful woman in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Now, as, as today's passage opens up, uh, we find that things are not going so well for Abram. He's obeyed God and left his familiar surroundings in search of the land God will show him. He's believed God's promises. He's arrived there in, in the land of Canaan. And then things start to go a bit sideways on him. Uh, he finds that the land's already occupied, for starters, and that's a bit of a challenge because there's nowhere really that he can just set up residence and live conveniently. And then he begins to find out from the Lord that, that the scope and the, the time frame of the promises that have been made to him are somewhat bigger than he maybe anticipated at first. Uh, the, the promises are going to be fulfilled in his offspring, in his descendants, not just right away in his own life. 
But even in those things, Abram continued to trust God. If you were here last week, we talked a little bit about how Abram built altars to the Lord to mark that he was still following the Lord, to mark that he had met with God in these places. And even in that, he moved from just uh, waiting upon the Lord to actually an active kind of faith calling upon the name of the Lord, initiating conversation with God. However, in today's passage, things really do get off track for Abram. But let's actually pay attention to what sets this up. There's famine in the land. Now, as well, one well-known but somewhat controversial Canadian professor who's commented at length on these stories summed it up. That's no joke, man. Somebody got it. Thank you. We make, we, we make jokes, though. We make jokes about being hangry at 3.15 in the afternoon, right? And we need a Snickers bar. Or we say at 11.45 in the morning when it's almost lunchtime, I'm starving. No, we don't understand about these things. We hear about Ukraine in the 1930s or China in the 1950s or Yemen in the present time. But it's, it's far away and it... it As much as we might be horrified by the things that we read about or that we see in the news, it doesn't really affect us. We still have enough to eat here and we just don't understand. It doesn't affect us. Here's the thing though. Being deprived of the, the basic necessities of life, that's about as bad as it gets. People in that situation get pretty desperate. And when people get desperate, they make some questionable choices. So Abram went down to Egypt. It's a bit difficult to crunch the numbers in a, in a way that just maps this story neatly onto the ancient Egyptian chronology. We, we can situate it broadly, though. Kind of ballpark date for Abraham would be about 2000 B.C., The pyramids, so far as we can tell, were built around 2500 BC. So by the time Abram gets to Egypt, the pyramids are already old. Like, Egypt is a well-established power in the ancient world by this time. Although there's some likelihood that at this specific point in Egypt's history, they were either in a period of, of serious recession or just kind of coming out of a very serious downturn in their power and economic status. But no matter... Egypt was still a powerful empire, and certainly a band of starving nomads, Abram and his people, that was no match for even an Egypt in a bit of a weakened state. Now, some of us might be wondering, why would they go to Egypt, though? Can we get a map? I think I have a map up there. There we go. There's the ancient world. Uh, So you can see the Persian Gulf there. Ur is right down there. Haran is kind of up at the other end of the Euphrates River. You can see the Holy Land there on the the right-hand side of the Mediterranean Sea. So Abram was kind of already down there, halfway between the Holy Land and Egypt. He's almost at Egypt. If there's famine where he is now, why is Egypt going to be a better choice? Isn't, and, and Why would you go there for food? Isn't Egypt a desert? Well, we think that because that's what we see in all the pictures. Much of Egypt is desert. That's what kept all the invaders out for thousands of years. We see Egypt had this this kind of secret weapon for prosperity. Their source of stability was the Nile River. Look look at where the Nile, go back to that other one. Yeah, you see the Nile coming up there? Look where Egypt is on that map where the Nile River fans out. It's colored green. You see, what would happen every year is the Nile River would flood. It would bring water that would irrigate the land. 
and it would bring uh, nutrient-rich silt down that would flood the land as well. So it was very rich for agriculture right along the Nile River. And because the source of the Nile River is way down there in Africa, there could be drought in what we'd call the Middle East now, but Egypt would still be doing well because they had a source of water that came from far away. So everybody else could be burning up with drought and famine, but the Egyptians, they'd just be carrying on, growing their crops, enjoying their prosperity, and things would be fine there. So Abram knows this, and he heads for Egypt. The problem is, though, that Egypt, Egypt is not a good place to go to. Throughout Scripture, as I said, Egypt represents the world as opposed to God. It's a place of tyranny and oppression, right? Where, where is it that eventually Israel ends up slaves? In Egypt. It's not the place you want to go. I mean, it's a truly great civilization in the sense that they built pyramids and statues and temples and massive feats of engineering that we still can't quite understand. But it is what we'd probably call now a totalitarian state. It seems that they had this reputation even in their own time. Furthermore, it seems that, that Abram knows that this isn't really a very good plan. Right? He had built altars. At Shechem, he had built an altar at Bethel to mark where he was with God. He knew when he was in those places, he was on the right path with God. He was walking in obedience to the Lord. That was where he was supposed to be. We don't have any record that the Lord spoke to Abram or that he called on the name of the Lord when he went down to Egypt. It's, it's a departure from where he's supposed to be. Abram knows that Egypt is not going to be a friendly place to him. And it seems like this must have weighed considerably on him as, as he went down there. Specifically, he seems very concerned that the Egyptians are going to see that Sarai is a beautiful woman, they're going to desire her, and they're going to kill him in order to take her, take her by force. Despite being well into middle age by this point, uh, she's still a very attractive woman, and Abraham has his concerns. So what are his options? He's got to come up with some kind of a plot here to, to try to save his own skin, basically. So he can just tell the truth and say that Sarai is his wife. If some Egyptian guy gets the hots for her, he's going to kill Abram. He's going to take Sarai. Abram loses. Sarai loses. Not a good situation. Okay, so option two is he can lie then. He can say that she's his sister. Some Egyptian guy still might want her. But then maybe there's some options. Unfortunately for her, and for women in general in this time, marrying off your sister or your daughter to some, uh, some guy for seal and alliance, uh, for well, what we see here, livestock and camels and so forth, was kind of what people did back then, and, and sadly throughout much of history. However, in this, I think Abram sees some options. If somebody wants to marry her, maybe they can stall for time by negotiating the terms of the marriage contract. And maybe by that time, well, they'll have stocked up on provisions and they can sneak out of town before she actually has to marry the guy. I mean, that's maybe best case scenario. Worst case scenario is the Egyptian guy still takes her as his wife, but at least Abram doesn't end up dead. And so Abram acts in a cowardly fashion and, and he lies in an attempt to save his own skin at the expense of his wife. Although truth be told, it seems like he doesn't have a whole lot of options 
in this situation. There's a strong chance that some Egyptian guy is going to take her, whatever he does. This is what happens when we start operating outside of God's plans for us, outside of the way that God has laid out for us to live. We end up having to come up with lies and contingency plans based on those lies to try to keep our misguided side trip somewhat on track and try to keep it justified in our own minds. Cobbled together, kind of at least temporarily, if possible. Of course, the worst case scenario doesn't happen. Something worse than the worst case scenario comes to pass. You see, Abram was just worried that some random Egyptian man was going to want to steal his wife. That would be bad enough. But what actually happens is Pharaoh wants to take her. You know, if it was just some run-of-the-mill Egyptian guy, maybe you could negotiate with him. Maybe you could come up with some sort of a rescue plan. But when it's Pharaoh himself, there's no chance. But then the plot thickens. Abram's actually doing pretty well in the midst of all of this. Pharaoh lavishes all manner of gifts upon him. Livestock and servants of all kinds. Abram already had quite an entourage following him at this point. You'll remember when he left Haran, it said that he left with all the livestock and the people of the servants that he had acquired during his stay there. So there was quite a number of people in the Abram entourage. But now he goes from pretty well off to loaded. Suddenly his concerns about the famine are long gone. Pharaoh is heaping gifts and wealth upon him. But all is not well. We don't exactly know what Abram's doing in the midst of all this. Is he really actually worried now that Sarah has been taken into Pharaoh's house? Is he sitting there trying to figure out, okay, how do we get her back? Do we, do we try some kind of rescue thing? Do we, do we try bargaining? Do, do I just maybe go and tell him the truth? We don't know. Or is he, I mean, maybe, worst case thing is he's just ready to cut and run. He's got all this wealth. He's just sitting there enjoying it, lighting up cigars from $100 bills. To slight, Okay, random side trip here. There are archaeologists that, that have studied Egyptian mummies, and, and they at least claim that some of them have traces of nicotine and cocaine. And then that leads to this whole rabbit hole conspiracy theory thing that the Egyptians had actually made contact with the New World. And look it up sometime. We don't have time today to go into that. But maybe not as much of an anachronism as you first thought. That was free. At, at any rate... Abram really can't do anything about this situation when you think about it. It, There's really not many options left to him. He's dug himself down about as deep as he's going to get into this hole. And there he is. Dead end. And then the Lord gets involved. In an act that foreshadows what's going to happen to a later pharaoh on a greater scale, the Lord brings great plagues on pharaoh's house We don't know whether Pharaoh had actually consummated this marriage with Sarai or whether she'd just kind of been taken into his household in preparation for that. We don't know, but the intention clearly was there. And that was sufficient to bring the Lord's judgment. What do we see happening there? Think back. Think back to the promises that God made 
to Abram at the beginning of this chapter. You remember what one of those promises was? Whoever curses you, I will curse. Or maybe even better from the Hebrew, whoever mistreats you, I will curse them, God says. God promises this to Abram. This is remarkable, right? Because Abram's gotten himself into this situation because he's departed from the path God laid out for him, for starters. And then second of all, he's lied about his wife's identity and dug himself deeper into this hole he's gotten himself into. And yet, despite the fact that he had wandered from the Lord's call, despite the fact that he lied, the Lord still stayed true to his end of the bargain. Abram's disobedience did not void God's promises. And that's a remarkable thing. So Pharaoh confronts Abram. It doesn't say exactly how Pharaoh arrived at the truth, how he made the connection from the the plagues to Abraham lied to me, but he was probably an intelligent enough man that he put two and two together and got four or five or whatever the correct number to figure out what was really going on amounts to. And he is not happy about this. Why did you do this to me? Why didn't you tell me that she was your wife? He's not really even wanting answers at this point. It's, It's clear he just wants Abram gone. He wants to see Abram's sandal prints across the desert and him going away. I mean, a later and more powerful pharaoh maybe would have considered revenge or something, but this guy, he's just, no. The, the plagues must have shaken him badly enough that it's, it's done. Just take your wife, keep the camels, keep the servants, just get out of my land, go back where you came from, I never want to see you again. Keep it all, just get out. And so Abram retraces his steps in the opening verses of chapter 13. Back up through the Negev, back up to where he was earlier at Bethel and Ai, and where he made an altar and called upon the name of the Lord. The, the beginning of chapter 13 really just says in reverse what was said in chapter 12. Abram completely retraces his steps. The text goes out of its way to be very specific. The Negev, Bethel and Ai, he built an altar and called on the name of the Lord. There's something beautiful about that. He he made some grievous mistakes. He left the land of promise and he put Sarai, through whom the promise was to come, in grave danger. It's true. The famine didn't leave him a lot of obvious choices if he didn't want to starve. Along with all his people and his livestock, of course. It's true, the the immorality of the Egyptians and their their cruelty, it didn't leave him a lot of obvious choices if he wanted to get out alive. Nevertheless, this whole episode at the end of chapter 12, it represents a serious departure from Abram's so far pretty faithful walking with the Lord. He gets seriously off track. But nevertheless, all is not lost. Once the Lord had intervened on Abram's behalf, he immediately figures it out and he gets back on track. He retraces his steps. He goes back to where he last was, that he heard from God, that he marked his his obedience in following God by building an altar 
he goes back there. He knows he needs to get back to where he was last following God faithfully. And he does that right away. He's turned from his path of disobedience and returned to the place where he was last walking with God. This is a very concrete, even geographical example of what repentance is. In fact, the the Hebrew word for repentance is turning or returning. Uh, This is a good thing that Abram does in, in recovering from this mistake that he's made. However, if I was making this into a movie... I would end this scene with one of those slow, fade-out close-ups on a character that we have not seen up until now who just joined the Abram entourage while they were in Egypt. Hagar. Nobody seems to make this connection much. I didn't really come across it a lot in the commentaries. But when we do, in a couple of chapters, meet Hagar, the text goes out of its way to say that she's Egyptian. And the text here says that while he was in Egypt, Abram was given male servants and female servants. It seems pretty clear that we're to understand this is the point in which she joins their group. In other words, that later episode of Abram's disobedience in attempting to produce an heir by Hagar and the fallout that has in his family and and, the world and history... It all had its roots back in this seemingly more minor episode of disobedience that seemed to come out mostly okay in the end. This, we're presented with some important truths as we wrap up this little bit of Abram's story. As I've already said, Abram's disobedience does not void the Lord's promises. The power of God's grace in action and his commitment to carry out that which he has planned is is bigger than Abram's disobedience. And it's bigger than ours. The unfaithfulness of Abram doesn't void God's promises or his purposes. Number two. Well, Abram's returning, his repentance, is essential if he's to continue walking with the Lord. The Lord's grace still precedes that. That's truly remarkable and truly beautiful. Abram is stuck at the dead end of his disobedience. In Egypt, out of options, his wife's taken, nothing is going right for him except he's got a lot of livestock. But He's dead-ended away from God's promises. And that's where the Lord's grace shows up and meets him and delivers him out of those circumstances and kind of gives him the kick he needs to get back on the right track. But nevertheless, it came before Abram got back on the right track. It came when he was at the dead end of his disobedience. And that's worth remembering for us too. This is the gospel. This is the, this is the teaching of the Bible from the beginning to the end. The Lord showed up in the garden, remember, looking for the wayward Adam and Eve in their disobedience. He showed up to rescue wayward Abram in Egypt. In, in Jesus' famous parable, right, the, the father runs out to meet his wayward son. And as the apostle Paul famously put it, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us our repentance totally matters 
if we're to, to receive God's grace and to go on receiving it, but it doesn't produce it. That's reassuring. However, despite these glorious truths, despite the truth that our disobedience doesn't void God's promises and purposes, it's also true that God's grace isn't just a magic wand that undoes everything and its consequences or its effects of our disobedience and our waywardness. Because I don't think there's any other explanation other than that subsequent shameful episode on Abram's part of his involvement with Hagar. I don't think there's any other explanation other than it had its roots in this detour of going down to Egypt. Forgiveness is real, but there may still be consequences that we have to live with. And sometimes small diversions from the proper path now may produce worse unforeseen problems later on. That's, that's sobering. Last week, we were reminded that proper walking with God means we don't just park ourselves because we think we've already arrived. Abram got that one right. He kept faithfully walking with God. This week, it's important to hear that proper walking with God doesn't mean we just wander off in any direction that seems logical at the moment. Abram got that one wrong. Proper walking with God happens between these two dangers. Interestingly enough, both of these represent ways that we can forsake the obedience to God's call that he's placed on us as individuals or even as a, as a body, as a congregation. Despite the great call that he received and the tremendous promises that came with it, Abram faced challenges pretty quickly. His challenges had primarily to do with scarcity. Going down to Egypt happened for him when he faced famine. He doubted whether God would be able to provide for him. He was out of options and he got desperate. I'm afraid that our challenges often have more to do with the opposite problem. Overabundance. The end result is the same though. Going down to Egypt happens for us when we face abundance and we wonder whether we really need God to provide for us. We have too many options and so we get distracted. We fixate on what we can achieve or think we can achieve for ourselves and we withdraw from what God wants to achieve in us and for us and through us. So let's not go there. Let's keep walking in trust and obedience to God. I get it. We're in a new season. Times of transition can be challenging. Change can be hard. And in a season like this, it can be easy to get distracted, to take a step back and coast, to, to keep un, take a keep the options open posture, or just disengage. But I would urge us not to do that. Because here's why. No one will live out the mission God's given to each one of us, or the mission that God's given to our church in this place, in this time, if we don't. Right? It can be so easy to slip into the mindset where we, where we imagine that there's this vague and mysterious group out there called they, who will do God's mission in the world if we don't. But there is no they, except us. We are the they who's going to do God's mission in this community, amongst this congregation, in the world. 
There's no other they who's going to do it for us. God has placed tremendous opportunities before us and he's placed tremendous gifts among us and blessed us. So let's commit together to using the gifts that God has given us, taking the opportunities that are before us, sticking to the way that he has laid out for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that calls us to faithfulness. Thank you for these examples that you wrote down so long ago that uh, show us who you are and how you work. We see today in Abram an example of someone who departed from the way that you had set before him. But also, we see in this story uh, clear testimony to your grace even in that, and we see what it looks like to return as quickly as possible and as specifically as possible uh, to what to what you call us to. Lord, some of us uh, may find ourselves at where we are now uh, somewhat tempted by, by departing from the way. Uh, we're distracted, we're, we're tempted, we're tripped up by, by some recurrent sin perhaps. Will you give us strength? Will you give us faithfulness to yourself um, to stay walking with you? Some of us maybe find ourselves uh, not in as good of a place. Uh, maybe we have, maybe we have uh, given in to some of those temptations or we find ourselves off track. May we find there that your grace is there for us even in that place and uh, may we have, uh, may we have the, the discernment and obedience to see it and to return to the way that you call us. And Lord, some of us may find that we are, we are on our way back. And we praise you for that. And uh, pray that you will, by your grace, give us day by day what we need to keep walking faithfully with you. To find our way back uh, into the way that you have for us. Again, Lord, we thank you for your word and what it speaks to us today. We pray that in the days to come, as we think on these things and pray about them, uh, that it will continue to speak to us uh, as we need to hear it. And we trust that it will. Through Christ our Lord.